0: Um, Today, we're reading Ezekiel 47, 3 through 12. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, and then led me through water that was ankle-deep. He measured off another thousand cubits, and led me through water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand, and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross, because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En to En There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea but the swamps, swamps in the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the water, uh, on both banks, excuse me, of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is the word of the Lord, and let's just pray for the message. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that these words will burst forth in life in our lives. I ask that you would open up the hearts of our people, Lord, and you would open our eyes and our ears to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: all right well good morning I just have to pray once more Almighty God um, let me decrease and you increase let your words be spoken not mine and I pray God that the same excitement and enthusiasm that you built in my heart when I studied these things uh, will be communicated uh, and enter the hearts of these people in Jesus name Amen so um yeah we're in ezekiel of all places partly because it's something i've studied recently and was fresh in my mind but i was also excited to to preach from the old testament because i've spoken to many people here over the the months that we've been gathered and i find a lot of people expressing kind of doubt about their ability to understand the old testament to to dig into it and um, boy I just want to encourage you I love the Old Testament I've learned over the years that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus and there's grace throughout the Old Testament it's fantastic I really hope that this message kind of whets your appetite for that Um, it's amazing what you see that God has done over thousands of years to prepare our hearts and, 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 the, and the redemption plan that he has is fantastic. Um, the other reason we're in Ezekiel is because I'm a big science fiction fan. How many are science fiction fans? Come on, all right. There's a good good group of them here. Um, you have to have faster than light travel and a good science fiction story. Although some classics like Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 You all realize there was no faster-than-light travel in that book. Um, You have to have time displacement. That's cool, because it really warps your brain to try to figure that stuff out. And alternative realities. Those those make for really good science fiction, right? Jonah's there nodding his head. He's he's, he's with me. I'm preaching to Jonah now. Um, Now, you may be surprised to know that I have found evidence... Of alternative reality in the Bible and right now Kyle is thinking oh no (laughs) I let a crazy person into the pulpit Um, but you won't be at all surprised to know that it's in Ezekiel Ezekiel is known for his vivid and almost incomprehensible visions many of you have read thought about wondered about the vision of the the wheel and a wheel and the four creatures with four faces um that that whole introductory vision kind of in ezekiel which is not proof of alien visitation by the way um, that's an amazing vision very hard to understand but i'm going to talk a little bit about it i'm going to share with you something that i learned which is mind-blowing about that vision of ezekiel But there are other visions. The vision he had of the valley of dried bones, um, the watchman on the wall, the burned vine, the unfaithful wife, two great eagles, and and the boiling cauldron. There's a list of visions that, that Ezekiel had which are just phenomenal. These visions is one aspect of Ezekiel. The other one is about the whole second, third, of, of Ezekiel is his um, oracles against the nations that surrounded Israel um, the nations that often mistreated and went to war against israel and so there's a whole set of oracles which are kind of cool they are very prophetic forward looking in nature but i'm I'm going to be focusing more on um, his his visions and the um symbolic acts that that Ezekiel did if you you read that book you find that God kept telling him to do really weird things like dig through the wall put all your belongings in a bag on your back and dig through the wall and exit the city that was a prophetic message about how the kings how the kings and the leaders were going to leave the city not on chariots and horses out the front gate but through a hole in the wall when they was, were finally overthrown. He told them to lie on his side in the middle of the street for months as a symbol of, of how he, God was turning his back on Israel. Really bizarre things, which are, and what they are are object lessons, very visual lessons that just stuck in the mind. And if you're a preacher or a teacher, you can learn a lot from studying Ezekiel. Object lessons is the way to go, man. I mean, I can stand here and tell you doctrine that's covered in Ezekiel and you won't remember any of it. But he put it into pictures, into symbols and, and actions that people would remember, especially in that time and even us as we study these books today. The book of Ezekiel is important theologically. You should understand that it was written while the Jews were in captivity in Babylon. And because of that, it emphasizes a return to holiness and to faithful adherence to God's law and his instructions, and the real spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. It calls for sincere execution of all the priestly duties, and it stresses the role of the priest in jewish life because by neglecting these things had led to their eventual overthrow and the destruction of the city so they're now in captivity in babylon and ezekiel is having these visions the very opening um, verse in ezekiel says i was by the river of whatever and that's in babylon and he started having these visions god spoke to him he's in babylon he's in captivity The book is grouped with what we usually call the major prophets. But it's important to remember that there are two aspects of prophecy. And this is key when you're looking at Ezekiel. Prophecy, we usually think of it as being the foretelling. Telling about something in the future. Usually the distant future. But there's another aspect of Ezekiel, or to prophecy in general, which we see a lot in Ezekiel, which is just forth telling or just declaring the nature of god the horror of sin the the condition of the people just forth telling in a, in a very descriptive and picturesque way that people will remember and that's the key to understanding some of the hard to understand parts of this book if you could advance to the next slide I do want to, I'm not going to spend most of this message talking about the wheel and the wheel and all that. This is some artist's depiction of what that whole vision looks like. Um, But what I learned, and this is like wicked exciting, so you got to pay attention. This whole thing about the wheels and the wheels and the four-faced creatures is not foretelling. It's not futuristic prophecy. This was Ezekiel's best effort at describing, in visual terms, the nature of the glory of God when it departed from the temple. It's awe-inspiring. It's scary. There's fire. There's you know there's loud noises. It's confusing. It's unscrutable. It's unstoppable exactly the nature of what it would have been like as the glory of god departed from the temple and from jerusalem and you know what's amazing about that why did he leave because his people left when israel went into captivity god didn't abandon them he accompanied them that's why ezekiel in captivity in Babylon is still able to write the scriptures the spirit of God is there that's why Daniel is still able to prophesy and, and give us scripture while in captivity that's why psalms were written by the waters of Babylon we, we hung our heads because the spirit of God was with them if, if I take nothing else out of the book of Ezekiel knowing that god never abandons his people is is a key that i can hold on to if you're in trouble if you're facing difficulty if you're wondering what god is doing in your life he hasn't abandoned you he's with you whatever trouble you're in whatever place you're in cling to that that's just that's just an introduction folks we haven't even gotten to the the good stuff that that was great i I loved hearing that This happened, this was not forward-looking, it wasn't futuristic. This is his pictorial description of the condition and the event of God abandoning Jerusalem. Who he abandoned was the people who thought they were all set and got left behind. They were on their own, pretty much. So, with that little bit of background, we come to Ezekiel's final vision. The description of a temple. Now, this temple vision takes up almost eight full chapters at the end of Ezekiel. It's the biggest single vision description in the book. It begins much like other descriptions that we're familiar with from Scripture. You know, we've seen um, Moses' tabernacle described in quite a bit of detail to the sides of the rods and the, the hooks that are used to hold the draperies up and everything we've seen uh, very detailed descriptions of the temple that Solomon was to build you know they all have all the kind of the same stuff it's all cubits and rods and gates and stairways and decorations of pomegranates and pineapples and sea cucumbers or whatever Golden utensils and basins and rooms for this and rooms for that. And it goes on and on and on, and it's amazing detail. Some of the most detailed descriptive texts in the Bible in various places deals with his house of worship, his temples. Um, I think God cares about his house. He just cares because it's where we all come to, to meet him but if and if you've decided in advance that this is a prophetic book and you're thinking futuristically you you read this stuff and you're saying which temple is this what temple is Ezekiel describing we know it's not Solomon's temple because that has already been destroyed that was built destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians when they finally tore down the walls and destroyed the city took all the gold and and stuff worth keeping from the temple uh, into captivity it's gone it is a pile of stones the next temple that it could have been was the rebuilt temple which was going to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel it was quite a bit larger than Solomon's temple if not as splendid the the nation wasn't as wealthy then didn't have as much gold to cover things with but it was pretty nice and under Herod the Great it was in, enlarged and beautified to a degree but not like the one that Ezekiel is describing can you call up that next slide please this is a com- the comparative sizes of some of those temples the big one on the left is what the description of Ezekiel's temple would be the top one on the right is Herod's temple that's the one that was existed at the time of Christ uh, beneath that the little red square is about the size of Moses's tabernacle that was a portable temple as it were and Solomon's temple and the text got moved around a little bit Solomon's is uh, that kind of orangish square and below that is that great American place of worship the football field <laughs> that's just to give you an idea this Ezekiel's temple is huge and if you, if you recall in that very first slide we don't go, need to go back there but it showed that temple off in the distance up on a hill and it was just broad and, and low and the, but the gates were tall those are the um, dimensions given in Ezekiel this huge broad temple up on a mountaintop a very wide mountaintop with the altar itself up on the peak of the mountain that the temple grounds surround More about that in a moment. Ezekiel's temple is larger and more glorious, it would appear, than either um, Solomon's or Herod the Great's temple. But not only that, from the dimensions and the location given in the book of Ezekiel, we learn that it's about 30 miles north of where the temple in Jerusalem is and it's on the top of a mountain that's not there it's not there today and it wasn't there in his time All right now i can hear the gears turning people are thinking well obviously um, obviously this must be a future temple one that will be built in some future glorious age maybe after christ's return maybe this is the temple in the millennial kingdom right Well, our minds are all going there there is a th- a school of thought which i have to acknowledge because a lot of smart people believe it besides me that this is what's called the third temple this is the temple that must be built and functional prior to the coming of the messiah the in in jewish theology also seems like it needs to be there before the second advent of christ This comes directly from the book of Ezekiel as well as other sources. It's widely held among Jewish theologians and supported by many Christian scholars. So I'm not going to discredit it. I'm not going to say they're wrong. But there are elements of this temple that are hard to buy. To be sure, there does appear to need to be a temple functioning uh, when Jesus returns. And sacrifices apparently need to be functioning or back in practice at that time. But we have two problems. One is this mountaintop location. Another mic. We have three problems. This mountaintop location and the description of the river that Pat read. That's our text for this morning. Should I switch Oh, there we go, all right. So Pat read the text about the description of this river that runs out from under the threshold in this temple and flows to the east. The mountain's not there, the river's not there yet. This river that starts as a trickle and then becomes ankle deep and then knee deep and waist deep and finally, Ezekiel describes as a river that no one can cross. And it flows into the Dead Sea, making the Dead Sea sweet, which means not salty in the uh, version, the the translation that I was originally reading. Let me tell you about the Dead Sea. Today, the Dead Sea is 9.6 times as salty as the ocean. Nothing lives there. Nothing lives on its banks. No fish live there. No trees grow there. It's a dead sea. Ezekiel says that this river flows into the sea, making it sweet. It's filled with large numbers of fish that are caught there. Fishermen are there fishing. I think that might be why I chose to do this. I love fishing. (laughs) Um, And along its banks, did you catch this in the reading, along its banks are every kind of tree. And it's never fall. They never lose their foliage. I'm not sure if that's in the plus or the minus column, but it says they bear their fruit every month. We went apple picking last week, and you know how all the apples fall on the ground and it gets kind of stinky and full of bumblebees and, and things? It's going to happen every month. (laughs) These trees are going to give their fruit every month for food and their leaves for healing. This is an amazing place. Again, it sounds like the Garden of Eden. It evokes images of the river again in descriptions of the millennial kingdom. We have this river, this healing, life-giving river. Is this the same place? Can you uh, turn to slide four? But we run against a big problem in Ezekiel as we continue to read the detailed descriptions of this temple and what goes on there. Because it says in chapter 45, verse 22, that on the day of Passover, the prince will provide a young bull as a sin offering for himself and the people of Israel. That's a hard first to deal with, if you're looking at this as a millennial temple. And who is this prince? We've got to figure out who this guy is, because he's offering sacrifices for his own sins. The best explanation, there are hints of it in Ezekiel. Not a solid explanation, but he uh, uses this similar terminology in earlier visions where he refers to a prince that's in the next slide Ezekiel 34:24 where he says Yep, that's the right place. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among my people. And in 37:25 it says that my servant David will be their prince forever. Now, and this is somewhat a fulfillment of past prophecy. Do You know that David was, was promised that he would have um, a descendant on the throne forever, which is fulfilled in several ways. Jesus Christ, being the King of kings, Forever and a descendant of David will ultimately fulfill this prophecy. but it's also saying that in the human realm, there will be a descendant of David on the king uh, on the throne forever. So this is a legitimate king in Israel, but a man, not the Messiah, not Jesus Christ. He's offering sin offerings. So in, in Ezekiel's theology, This is who this prince is. And it's really not mentioned all that often. It just comes up once in a while, and this is the best uh, description we have of what Ezekiel is thinking when he writes that. But the question is, how can there be a sacrifice for sin in the millennial kingdom? The next slide, Hebrews 7.27, and many other scriptures that we all could remember in the New Testament say things like this, unlike other high priests he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's the reality where we are today and where we will be in the millennial kingdom. There will be no more need for sacrifice. Now, the Jews <coughs> don't quite recognize that yet. That's why during this time of, of, in, in history, future history, we expect that there will be a rebuilt temple and there may be a, a resumption of sacrifices in Jerusalem um, before Jesus Christ returns again. But there's not going to be sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom. So when I got to this point and I was reading through Ezekiel and I encountered these existence of sin sacrifices, I said, I I must have missed something. I got to go back and start reading again from the beginning. Which is an important thing to remember. Um, The best way to interpret difficult scriptures is by scripture. You know, the best way to understand the parable of the the seeds and the sowers is to read a little bit further and see what Jesus says about it. (laughs) He gives the explanation. The best place to learn about a lot of difficult things in Scripture is to find out what Scripture says about it. So um, when you turn back, when you rely on Scripture to understand what's going, or if you don't understand it, read it again carefully or use your cross-references and go to other places, And here's where I found my alternative reality. (laughs) Ezekiel 43.10. The next slide. In God's original instruction to Ezekiel about this whole vision, this is why he told him to do it. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sin. I think that what Ezekiel is describing is what might have been. It's an alternative reality. I do believe this vision is somewhat used to prophetically foresee the third temple that we talked about. But isn't it also possible that Israel might have seen this temple in their lifetimes if they had been faithful to God, if they had lived their lives the way God intended, if they had followed his instructions, trusted in his grace and his provision. This vision of what the temple might have been if only they had listened to their God. You might ask, well, there's still those problems. We've still got this temple built on a mountain that didn't exist in their time and we still got this crazy river but you know I, I ask myself those kind of questions even in this day and age when I fail to take God at his word the next slide please because doesn't it say John 16:23, whatever you ask the father in my name he will give you John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And even more amazing, Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And it will be big enough for the biggest temple you could ever imagine. What might have been for Israel, what they might have experienced, was a glorious mountaintop temple, fish and fruit in abundance, probably some left rotting on the ground, healing medicines, fresh water, peace between Israel and all its neighbors, an equitable distribution of the land, intimate relationship with the Father, in which he lovingly supplies all their needs and communes with his people and through them all the nations as well. I believe that was an alternate reality. Now, God had a plan for redemption. He knows our state. He knows their condition. He had it all under control from the beginning because he knows, I mean, um, Israel got distracted by works of the law. They turned from a relationship to God to just satisfying works of the law, and they missed it. We miss it too most of the time. Ezekiel's temple... So so we have this situation that we look back at, in history possibly and understand that, that God was displeased or or wants Israel to understand that maybe this great vision of what Ezekiel is saying They could have had if only they had not sinned, but he knows we all sin. But the biggest question is, what does that mean to us today? How can we use this in our lives and as we try to live out the life of the church correctly? No sermon or Bible study or anything you do is much good if you don't turn to application, understanding what it means to your life. As we know, um, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, right? Just knowing doesn't help. You've got to do something with it. And Ezekiel's temple vision is all about obedience and taking God at his word. It's about living a life of radical, action-producing faith in the promises of God. Regardless of whether this temple is a foretelling of the third temple or a temple that might have been built but never was, God's purpose in having Ezekiel describe it in such great detail was to convict Israel of their sin. Now I want you to raise your hand if you've ever had a vision. Whoa, good. There's a few people. And I'll have the rest of you raising your hand before this is over. You know, there are times, like maybe late at night, when you're trying to sleep and not quite getting there, and your mind's just wandering, the pepperoni pizza's keeping you awake. You're kind of in that land between wakefulness and sleep. Or sometimes early in the morning, you're just coming out of sleep. The alarm clock hasn't gone off yet, and your imagination and your thoughts and your dreams kind of merge together. Often in those situations, in those times, my mind goes to dealing with issues and problems and stuff that's in my life, but in a very creative way. And I begin to imagine responding to a situation with faith, incredible faith, or or maybe a word in season. You know, it's it's like a dream, but my conscious thoughts are there as well. And sometimes you imagine people responding positively and in humility. You imagine reconciliation just blossoming. You imagine almost miraculous consequences, and and people supplying one another's needs, and hurdles falling away, hearts changing, doors opening, tears flowing, amazing things happening. And then the alarm clock goes off. And you say, well, enough of that foolishness. Time (laughs) Time to face the dead. And we bury that talent. And we expect God to be (coughs) pleased when we come back to him and offer nothing more than the natural fruit of our natural living in a natural world. I believe in an alternative reality. I believe there's a reality of the spirit I believe there's a place where God wants us to be and to go and things he wants us to do. And it's not beyond our grasp yet. I believe it's what might be if we take God at his word and if we step out in faith and trust him utterly because he is utterly faithful. Now there might be some here who maybe aren't all that familiar with God's promises in the Bible. And maybe you're not sure this message really even applies to you at all. But I want you to know one thing. In this last slide. In another book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which just means the preacher. He says this, referring to God, he has planted eternity in the human heart. What does that mean? It means that God has designed and built the human mind to know things that are completely outside the realm of natural experience. And if you can imagine eternity It's because God made you. If you can imagine some reality where there might be forgiveness for you. If you can imagine that there might be a time and place where there would be grace available to you. If you can imagine a life of purpose filled with loving relationships, it's because God made you and put a desire for those things in your heart. And even if it's only a dim hope, I urge you, don't disregard that vision. Our heavenly Father has an alternative reality prepared for each and every one of us. Some of us have seen it and grasped it and are heading there with all our strength. All of you can enter it through Jesus Christ. He paid the price of admission. He is your ticket. He's better than that gold ring on the merry-go-round, but you've got to grab him. Hold on to him and enter the reality that he has prepared for you. I urge you, don't abandon that vision. Don't abandon that dream. People of God, don't abandon the crazy idea of responding to the challenges in your life with the gospel, with the word of peace, with faith. Because he is utterly faithful. Let's pray. Almighty God, <laughs> I just pray that you awaken in us the ability to see your reality, to see what you have prepared. Not just in a distant future, but here on earth in our lives with victory over sin and um, triumph over difficulties. And and God, we just, I dare you. I, I ask you to dare us to walk according to your promises and to trust in you. We ask that you and you alone would fill our vision. In Jesus' name. Amen.